Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. So sometimes when I write a sermon, I, I'm putting it together very last minute. Um, and then other times, a lot of times I like to start like a, a week early. So I have some time to kind of chew on it and marinate on it. And maybe the ideas need a little time to be fleshed out. And sometimes I write sermons that are very linear, and other times they're just like what I call vomit. Of like you just sit down with an open document, and it's like, blah, there it is. And the whole thing comes out like in one shot, and it's all right there. And you go, all right, cool. It's not always good. Sometimes you go, oh, that's terrible. Uh, but other times it works out well. This sermon was written as a vomit last week. And then Scotty came along last Sunday and basically preached this sermon, but better. <laughs> <laughs> In a very linear, orderly way. So if you were here last week and you really liked Scotty's sermon, feel free to like check out for the next 20 minutes. You can go, <laughs> go down to Calm Waters, um, you know, do what you need to do. Uh, but if you're up for it, this is the uh, vomit version of Scotty's sermon. So would you guys like to jump into the vomit with me this yeah. morning? Yeah. yeah? All right. All right. Sounds good. As Scotty would say, we'll, we'll do at least one orderly thing in this, here this morning. If you get nothing else from the sermon this morning, it's this. Good is its own reward. Got it? Good is its own reward. Lord, be with us as we jump into Ecclesiastes 9 here. May these words truly shape us. And they help us to be like Jesus in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for the past two months, we've been reading the book Silence at our book club. It's the story of a Portuguese missionary who goes to Japan in the 1640s and experiences the profound persecution of the Japanese church. And one of the questions the book asks is this. If you try and do good in this world... Will good things happen to you? I think I have that on this slide. If you try and do good in this world, will good things happen to you? If you try and follow God and live by faith and do what Jesus says, will things go well for you in this world? If you're a person of faith, can you walk securely in the knowledge that God will take care of it? That God will show up, that God's got it? What do you think? I want a yes-no answer to that, but it seems to be more complicated than that. I, I've, I've wrestled a lot with this, and I can't seem to square it to, like, one simple answer. On some level, I know that following Jesus might get you hated, persecuted, abandoned, and crucified, right? But I also know about the lilies of the valleys, and ask, seek, and knock, and the manna from heaven, and chariots of fire, and all these ways that God seems to show up to his people. I know about earnest missionaries who have gone broke. And I also know of the miracle checks that have shown up in my mailbox like dozens of times where it's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what we needed. I know about God showing up on Mount Sinai for Elijah in the pits of despair. And I also know about the long silence of God while Israel is in exile. In my head, I know that success is not a guarantee for those who are faithful, but in my heart, I think I'm heartbroken every time I go out in genuine faith and it doesn't work out. 
If it goes well, if you do good in this world, will it go well for you? I think Gwen's answer is right. Yes and no. Sometimes. The scriptural witness seems divided on this one, and so does my life experience, and so we come to Ecclesiastes 9. If you read Ecclesiastes 9, you'd start with something like verses 2 and 3. It says, All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, and those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Okay, got it? Ecclesiastes 9 concludes by saying this. Gwen made reference to these verses. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare. So people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. So if you just read those two verses, you'd have to say it's pretty random, right? Will good things happen to those who do good? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Time and chance come for us all. And at first glance, this, this can lead us directly into nihilism, right? It doesn't matter whether you do good or bad because both die. It doesn't matter whether you give all your, your life to Jesus or spend all your life cheating others, whether you make offerings or not. The race is not to the swift. Time and chance come for us all. On the surface, it would appear that Ecclesiastes would be kind of on the far end of the spectrum in terms of saying there's no correlation between how you act and how it goes for you in this world. You might live a perfectly righteous life and still end up broken, disgraced, and dead, just like everyone else. All right, now let's all be sad and go home. No. I do think this chapter makes a pretty important turn right in the middle, and it actually provides some context to what the, the teacher is saying, and I think it helps us understand this a little bit. And that's verses 7 to 10, where it says this. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless, meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. If we go back up to verse 7 there. God has already approved what you do. That's a profound statement, right? It has some pretty big implications. God has already approved what you do, which means you're good. If you can receive it, you're already saved, you're already loved. 
you already have everything you need. In the words of Richard Rohr, you can practice uh, what he calls cosmic okayness. I know I use that phrase a lot because I think it's super important. You are okay. Like fundamentally, like deep in your soul, like you are okay. You're cosmically okay. Take a second. (laughs) You're okay. Maybe you're already there. If so, good for you. But wherever anxiety and doubt and fear and longing and all these things are just weighing you down, I invite you to sit in that for a second. You're, you're okay. All is well. All is well. All manner of things shall be well. And this is easy to forget, right, as we go throughout our life and we get dinged by anxieties or bills or, or all the difficult things of life. And this is why Ecclesiastes says, always be clothed in white and always anoint your head in oil, right? These are both symbols of God's approval, of God's blessing, of God's choosing, of God's anointing. And so it's a little bit like poetic, but also it's like, no, like physically remind yourself constantly that you're okay. That like you are loved by God, absolutely. Use outward symbols if you need to, to have constant reminders that, like, you are fundamentally loved by God. God has already approved of all that you do. So, you know, whether you need to put the cross on the wall and remind yourself that Jesus has paid it all, or the waters of baptism, what they do in traditional churches, where you, you, know, you stick your finger in the water there and remind yourself you've been washed with Christ, or an icon, or a mantra, or if you want to, wear white every day, like it says. We won't judge you. You can show up to church every Sunday wearing white. It'd be kind of fun. Um, But don't forget this one. That's kind of the point, right? Put oil in your head. Always wear white. Because you are good already. You are already good. God has already approved of what you do. And so the question the New Testament asks in light of this, if you read the book of Romans, is shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase, right? In other words, if we're already good, why does any of it matter? If sin is already accounted for, if God has already approved our works, why do good in this world? Why not cheat and steal and sleep around and assume you'll end up in the same place as the righteous? And for this, I think we need to talk about bedtime. Many of you have probably heard me use this analogy before, but I tend to think that the law and the commandments of God are a little like bedtime. Since our kids have been little, we've had a bedtime for them, right? It makes sense. We do not have a bedtime for them because we hate them. We do not have a bedtime for them because we like arbitrary rules. We don't have a bedtime for them because we are all holy parents who cannot stand to have disobedient children in our presence. We don't have bedtime so they can prove their purity or atone for their sin. We have a bedtime for them, for their sake, so that it will go well for them in this world. We have a bedtime for them so that they will be well-rested and able to live well in this world. And it is important they follow their bedtime. If they don't, they might actually get punished. And rebellion can break relational connection. And at times, confession and forgiveness help restore right relationship. 
That said, the most tragic conversation I can possibly imagine having is if Augie came to me when he was 21 and said, I followed my bedtime every night. I'm a son, right? I followed my bedtime every night. I've never gone to bed, bed late. You love me, right? You approve of me, right? I've earned my place in the household. Do you know how tragic that would be? Do you feel that? Because you just want to look at him and be like, you think that's what bedtime was about? You're a son just because. That was never a question. You never earned it. It was granted to you from the day you were born. This is a grace that's been given from the very beginning. So bedtime helps, right? It helps us stay in good relationship. But bedtime is not about earning your place in this household. You are a son just because. You are good. You're good. You're good. God has already approved what you do. Does that make sense? And I think this is where Ecclesiastes pushes us. That we don't do good in this world because of where it leads or what it gets us. That we should do good because it's good. That we should do good regardless of outcome. That we should do good because lying and cheating and sleeping around will wreck your soul. Not because your father will be disappointed in you. Goodness is its own reward. And so Ecclesiastes tells us, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil because you're good already. So let go of your plans and your schemes. Don't love the person in front of you for what you will get out of it. Love them just because. Don't love them because of what it says about you or what you could present on social media or or because it justifies you as a good person. Love them just because, because it's actually better to live in love, amen? Amen. Love what is in front of you without any motive other than just loving what is in front of you. Whether it's the day, whether it's the circumstances, whether it's the person in front of you, love just that thing as an end in itself. This is what Richard Rohr calls the non-judgmental gaze of God. So we think about whether we should do good or evil in this world, I want you to remember this quote by Father Greg. He says, God doesn't want anything from you, only for you. Good is its own reward. Amen? Amen. So in other words, good is not a means to a reward, right? Goodness is the reward. Don't be good for where it will get you because it might get you nowhere. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us, right? The outcome might not be what you want. And actually, you have very little control over that. And even if everything is set up right, time and chance come for us all. So be good, to quote Santa, be good. For goodness sake. Which ironically, I've reflected on the fact this week that that song preaches the exact opposite message. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
It tells you that you should be good because there's a polar elf king who's surveilling you 24-7. And if you displease the polar elf king, you will get less presents. Do the opposite of what that song says. Be good not for the presents. Be good because goodness is its own reward. Be good for goodness sake. Be good because it's a better way to live. Be good because your soul will be good. Don't eat vegetables because they'll make you skinny, right? If you do, you'll always hate vegetables. Realize that vegetables are good and you'll probably sleep better and feel happier and have more energy and enjoy your life more if you eat vegetables rather than another bag of chips. Be good for goodness sake because goodness is its own reward. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 6, no, 1 to 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or in the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will, will reward you. Now I think if we read this wrong, what it says to us is don't, try to, don't do your good works to tally up points on earth. Instead, do your good works to tally up points in heaven, right? But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what he's saying is that if you do your good works to justify yourself, whether it's with God or for yourself or for other people, you might get the praise of other people. You might, and that will be the end of your reward. You'll get a little bit of cheap applause and that's it. You won't meet God in it. You won't grow in love. You will not experience freedom. You will not experience joy. In fact, you'll probably feel a crippling anxiety that you have to keep the act up. You won't deepen in character. You'll get some cheap applause and that's it. But instead, when we realize that good is its own reward and we help others, even if it never shows up on Instagram, if we do this, God meets us in that place, right? I think God meets us there and does a tremendous work in our soul and we learn to grow in love and we learn to be a loving person and we come in touch with deep inviting fellowship with the other person, with ourselves, with God. We grow and we touch the kingdom of God and this is the reward of our Father in heaven. It's not some tally point system. It's that we actually come into the kingdom of God. But that requires kind of killing off some of that ulterior motive and loving just because. Because it's there that we meet God. So not all generosity will be rewarded in this world. But I think Ecclesiastes tells us to be generous anyway. And food does not always come to the wise, but seek wisdom anyway. And living in faith may not always lead to the success of your endeavors, but live in faith anyway. The reward is not some down-the-road outcome. The reward is deep and abiding fellowship with God and love for your neighbor. The reward is that you get to be the one who's naive enough to live in love, even if the outcomes don't turn your way. You get to be the one who lives in delight rather than cynicism. You get to be the one who does not scheme. You get to be the holy fool 
who runs around and loves people just because even if it doesn't flourish your standing in this world. That's pretty profound freedom, isn't it? What if we all did that? (laughs) Just went around and said, you know what? That's the calling Jesus has given us. Love people in silly ways, regardless of outcome. Be that holy fool. Be a pretty fun way to live, trusting that God has already approved of all that we do. And as we circle back to that original question, will living in faith lead to better outcomes in this world? When we go out in faith and then live in love, will God meet us there, or is it really just arbitrary? I spent a lot of time on this this last month thinking about this, and you know that the passage that God has given me is actually Mark 4, verses 3 to 8, which is the parable of the sower. You guys know this one? I'll give you just the short version here. Jesus is speaking. He says, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plant so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. So where does the sower sow their seed? Everywhere. Yeah, the sower sows it on the path, and the birds come and eat it up. No harvest comes. Does the sower become stingy and hold back? No, he sows in the rocky place, and for a time it grows, and then it shrivels, and no harvest comes. Does he become stingy and hold back the seed? He sows in the thorns, and the seed grows up until it's choked out by the thorns, and no harvest comes. Does the sower become stingy and hold back the seed? He continues to sow the seed, right? Right? Always in generosity and in love, regardless of outcome. And then what happens? The seed hits the good soil. And profound, miraculous, crazy things happen, right? 30, 60, and 100 fold. And if you've ever seen that happen, it is truly profound, right? Has anybody witnessed that? When good seed hits good soil and it's just, whoa, you just stand back in awe because it's something so much bigger than you could have ever done something you never could have programmed, something you never could have schemed towards. The kingdom of God shows up and it's truly profound. And I say that because I don't think living in love is always just this dead-end game, right, that never actually produces outcomes. Sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes it's truly profound. Sometimes it hits the right soil and, oh man, just watch out. And you just hold on and you praise God and go, this is so much bigger than I could have possibly imagined. But sometimes it's not. And I think this passage tells us, don't lose your soul when that happens. 
Don't close up. Don't get cynical. Don't become stingy. Continue to sow the seed of love. The challenge is most of us aren't actually good enough gardeners to diagnose good soil all the time, right? So keep sowing the seed of love. Jesus does give you permission to move on, I think, if you keep, like, hitting that bad soil. And I think that's because Jesus doesn't want you to become bitter and stingy. Sometimes you do have to say, all right, it's time for me to move to a different field. But that's so you don't lose your soul. So you can continue to live in love. Love just because. Maybe it'll be the rocky soil, and you know what? So what? You still got to live in love. And maybe it will be the thorns, and that's annoying to be sure. But remain in love. And maybe it will be the path, and that's a bummer. But remain in love. And once in a while, you hit the good soil, and then, man, that's pretty cool. You are good. Go eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Do good regardless of outcomes, because you are already good. You don't need to prove yourself to anyone. You can do good even if no one notices, even if it's not received, because you and God are good. Regardless of what comes, the better path is always love. Amen? To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.